Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. The oil crisis of the 1970s sparked a flurry of research into other forms of energy, wind, solar, geothermal, and more. Government funding was no problem until, well... The government said, well, look, price of oil has gone down a couple of dollars. We don't need alternate energies. Just stop. Just stop. Work that could have helped cut emissions decades ago. Today, producer Molly Siegel tells us the surprising story of what happened to all that research. Also, a report card on Canada's performance since the Global Climate Summit in Glasgow six months ago. How and why your vote can make a difference to climate change. And a remarkable new way to know how safe you are or are not from wildfire. So if we know your home is vinyl siding with an asphalt roof and you have a bunch of trees beside your home, we can then calculate the likelihood of that home to combust. Spoiler alert, it's only available in the United States. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Russia's war in Ukraine is causing many countries to rethink where their energy comes from. After all, Russia is the world's second largest net oil exporter. In the U.S. and Canada, there's talk of ramping up oil production. In Europe, there are plans for the EU to push quickly to switch to renewables by 2030. It's not the first time in history nations have had to reconsider just how people heat their homes and keep the lights on. In the 1970s, an oil crisis sparked research in Canada that we can still learn from today. Producer Molly Siegel brings us that story. So this is my... No, come in. Okay, uh, well, I'm uh, Alan Jessop, J-E-S-S-O-P. I'm living now in a senior's residence in the west end of Calgary. I've been in Calgary since 1987. Alan is 88 now. He started his career as a federal scientist in 1962. In a pure science program, which was part of an international geophysical effort to look at the the solid earth, the upper mantle and um, the crust. But October 1973 would change the course for Jessup and for many others. Abu Dhabi says it's stopping all oil supplies to the United States and Saudi Arabia, while threatening to do the same, has announced a 10% production cut. And being the biggest single oil producer in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia's stand could well be the cue for the others to take the same steps. The producing countries see production cuts as their best method of bringing oil into the Middle East war because it's the only way they can be absolutely certain their boycott will affect countries supporting Israel. Those impacts immediately reverberating around the world. The possibility of gasoline rationing has been raised in the United States. The chairman of the board of the Chase Manhattan Bank 
says Americans must be prepared to live with the Arab oil embargo for many months oil, to come. its cost and supply made headlines around the world. Milwaukee. Oil shortages may force schools to close this winter. Paris. A government warning to consumers, cut down on gas usage or face rationing. Winnipeg. Transair applies for a fair increase, citing labor costs and a 12% increase in the cost of jet fuel. The energy crisis. Emergency meetings and discussions go on around the world in efforts to find answers before it's too late. And the world at six has... Alan Jessup was one of the people called on to help find solutions. We were, as I say, doing scientific work. So the management said, well, look, we're going to have a geothermal energy program. You need to convert. In other words, stop asking big general questions from your office in Ottawa. Instead, Jessup and his team started surveying Canada for sources hot enough to generate electricity or to heat buildings. It was part of the energy research program started in 1976. So by 1976, when money appeared, we were, we were ready. We'd already been able to sort of start a few projects in British Columbia, at a place called Meager Mountain, which is just north of Whistler. And we chose that as a place to start because of the chemicals that were in the hot water that was bubbling out of the ground. Jessup and his colleagues drilled into Mount Meager, an old volcano, hoping there would be water hot enough to make electricity. We worked not only in British Columbia and the volcanoes, but we also worked in the sedimentary basins, and particularly with the University of Regina. The university had been promised a new sports stadium and wanted to power it with heat. This time, Jessup's team discovered temperatures weren't hot enough for electricity, but were warm enough to heat the building. But the funding for that fell through. Out east in Nova Scotia, things were more promising. Now, if you remember, Spring Hill was a coal mining town, and they had a mining disaster. They lost a lot of men, they closed the mines, and the whole economy of the town went downhill. They came to us and they said, our mines are full of water, the temperature is about 19 to 20 degrees. One, why is it so warm? And two, can we use it? Turned out they could use it to heat some local buildings. I mean, it's nice being a pure scientist, but being a useful scientist is also good. Uh, so, yes, we, we, we enjoyed it. Geothermal was one of the five renewable sources Canada was spending millions of dollars on. Wind, small hydro, solar, and biomass were the others. Research into nuclear fusion was also funded. Then, in 1979, another oil shock. The first day of gas rationing in California forced 10 million motorists to line up for hours on end as they tried to fill up their tanks on the allotted day. In Washington, the Senate gave its long-awaited approval to President Carter's rationing plan, which gives him the authority to ration gas in emergencies. The situation in the U.S. is expected to get worse, and that has led to some concern about the prospects of rationing here at home. In a televised address, then-President Jimmy Carter implores Americans... We'll ask private companies to sacrifice, just as private citizens must do. Certainly there was a very famous um, call to conservation uh, by Jimmy Carter, where he wore a sweater and the room was a bit dark, and he called on Americans to, to reduce their energy consumption. 
About 30 years old at the time, Peter Love was one of the many Canadians who tuned in to President Carter's address. All of us must learn to waste less energy. Simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, at 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we could save half the current shortage of natural gas. Um, And that got a lot of play up here. Love is 73 now an energy consultant. And back in 1979, he was also working in energy and environmental projects. Carter's call to conserve energy, to be more efficient with it, was also unfolding in Canada. One thing that would be very tempting to do is when you have a supply problem, you have a problem with oil or you have a problem with fossil fuels, the first thing people think about doing, well, let's just get more of it. But back then, They had a very active um, uh, conservation program. Uh, It was a massive program, uh, rolled out exceedingly quickly and very effectively. Love is talking about CHIP. The Canadian Home Insulation Program. Before the internet, the government published books like the 1983 Consumer Resource Exposition Guide, listing programs and services available to the public. CHIP provides a direct taxable grant to eligible householders who retrofit their homes to improve energy efficiency. And COSP. The Canadian Oil Substitution Program. Designed. To encourage conservation of energy by making homes more energy efficient and to promote the substitution of oil with alternative sources of energy. Which included switching to natural gas. In the 70s, the federal government loved its acronyms. There was also PUSH. Purchase and use of solar heating. And FIRE. Forest industry renewable energy. But they must have run out of ideas for SDWHP? Solar Domestic Hot Water Program. At the same time, Canada launched its national energy program, boosting production and investing in the oil sands and offshore drilling and made the controversial decision to set national prices on oil. Part of the effort to secure energy supply in Canada, industry was also hard at work. My name is Louis Droll. I'm a professor emeritus from Simon Fraser University, where I taught marine botany for 37 years. The private sector was also knocking on doors of scientists like Droll. It was about 1980 he had recently started his kelp research in the small, remote community of Bamfield on Vancouver Island, not known as a bustling energy research hub. Louis Drool, in rubber boots, long hair, hanging out on the beach, tending to his kelp. Then, out of the blue, General Electric and the Gas Institute of America asked him, can we make gas out of kelp? I could almost see a a little sitcom movie. So here's this assistant professor with an exciting little research program in a little village, 150 people. They're all, you know, very conservative fisher folks. And uh, all of a sudden, opportunity comes to go into the big world. And planes are flying in with people in suits from Philadelphia. They're landing on the water and taxiing up and asking, where do we find Louis Droll? And the whole village got really very excited by this. Drool and his team got to work, looking for solutions to the oil crisis, trying to figure out the technology to turn kelp into gas. Back then, he knew nothing about the vast amount of carbon dioxide kelp could absorb. Instead, 
there was a frantic attitude, you know, to do something to counter these ridiculous oil prices. So they poured money into projects like ours and other projects, I'm sure. But then all of a sudden, the prices of oil went down and they stopped. In the spring of 1983, Drool's research center went back to the quiet seaside spot it had been. And in 1985, under Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, money for energy efficiency dried up. CHIP and COSP phased out. A year later, Alan Jessup was about to get bad news about his own research project. The government said, well, look, price of oil has gone down a couple of dollars. We don't need alternate energies. So just just stop. So we, we stopped. Jessup asked around to see if anyone wanted a report to sum up what he and his team had learned in the last 10 years. But the government said, no, don't bother. Just two years later, in June 1988, a different scientist found himself getting brushed aside. A NASA climate scientist, James Hansen, had a stark warning to U.S. Congress. The greenhouse effect is real. It's us humans causing it. And the impacts are going to get worse. CBC in 1989 on Hansen's already controversial testimony. After last year's brutal summer and a prolonged drought across much of North America, scientists are increasingly convinced that man-made pollutants are partly to blame, the greenhouse effect. But a top NASA scientist, Dr. James Hansen, told a congressional committee that the White House tried to water down his testimony about the greenhouse effect. It is very likely that droughts will intensify at low and middle latitudes as the greenhouse warming proceeds. Global warming. Scientists had known about it for years, but this was the first warning that action was needed now. It would become the reason a Canadian scientist, Steve Grasby, would revisit geothermal. In the early 2000s, Grasby started looking for all the research Alan Jessup and his team had to abandon nearly 20 years earlier. Oh, yes, I had a lot of it because we were still living in our house. I had a large garage full of boxes of papers and all sorts of stuff. At some point, the word got out, and I started just randomly getting big boxes in the mail addressed to me, of people sending me all their old files once they, they knew someone was interested in it. Oh, and that report Alan Jessup wanted to write? It took a couple decades, but eventually, he did it. 128 pages in, in this one, and the other one's similar. Publishing two reports on their findings, which mapped geothermal potential across Canada. Both very high temperatures for electricity and lower temperatures we could use to heat buildings. And even now, decades later, this forms the basis of most of what we know. Now, as a new crisis unfolds, there are calls to action, but not only for renewables. To immediately increase the supply of oil, our prices are rising because of Putin's action. There isn't enough supply. And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have more oil supply right now. Politicians pitching Canadian oil as an interim solution to cost and security concerns sparked by Russia's war in Ukraine. In this context, recent decisions by the United States and Canada to expand hydrocarbon exports to our European friends to displace Russian oil and gas for the short term are entirely appropriate. Minister of Natural Resources Jonathan Wilkinson said in the medium and long term, other solutions, including renewables and clean technology, are essential to both climate and energy security. 
But Alan Jessup hopes this moment might trigger more immediate action. I look now and I see the price of gasoline at the pumps. I am inclined to say, oh, good. (laughs) Perhaps it'll stop people using the stuff. (laughs) Perhaps it will. Molly, thank you so much. That was so interesting. And it's, it's really something to think about that the solutions were being outlined so long ago and it could have been tackled back then, but it wasn't. I mean, I think about things like Mount Meager. I've been to Mount Meager. I know what the geothermal potential is there. They're still looking at it for geothermal potential. Um, So geothermal lives on. Um, Energy efficiency, that was another idea back then that is still around today. But while the money to help out the homeowners dried up, the focus switched to policy, and that came to improving things like building codes. But it's all so relevant today. About six months ago, the world's leaders wrapped up climate talks in Glasgow for COP26. In November, they'll meet again for COP27. With ambitious plans unveiled in Scotland, how far along is Canada to meeting its promises? Eddie Perez is the International Climate Diplomacy Manager for Climate Action Network Canada. Hello. Hello. For those listeners who may not be familiar with COP26, what big commitments did Canada make at those meetings? So Canada went to COP26 with a new Paris pledge that included a commitment to reduce emissions in 2030 by 40 to 45 percent below Canada's emissions in 2005. It also put forward its commitment to double its international climate financing, the support that Canada provides to countries that uh, need funding to increase adaptation and mitigation options. And it also committed to put forward an adaptation strategy in 2022. Okay, we're now six months out from COP27. And that's obviously half a year left to the next round of climate talks in Cairo, Egypt. If you rate the Canadian government on its progress so far from one to 10, 10 being excellent, one being maybe not so excellent, what would it be? Four, because... Canada has been, for the past 30 years, one of the worst players when it comes to doing its part in the global climate action. And I think it is fair to say that at COP26, Minister Gubo and Prime Minister Trudeau brought new measures that are allowing Canada to catch up to other countries. But it is not enough. At this moment, while Canada has put forward a new Paris pledge, we are looking at the things that Canada is presenting, in particular, its new emissions reduction plan uh, that includes still the expansion of fossil fuels. And that is really hurting the credibility of Canada internationally. Let's just go back to what you said about the commitment to help poor countries. Canada was part of a group of countries that failed to make good on a $100 billion commitment to help those poor countries combat the impacts of climate change. So tell us why that didn't happen. In 2021, the Canadian government put forward uh, a pledge to double its international climate finance contribution from $2.6 billion over five years to $5.3 billion from 2021 to 2026. That was a welcome move globally. And it was something that actually allowed Canada 
to take a leadership role in getting other countries to follow. So back in 2021, the United Kingdom asked Minister Wilkinson if he would be able to get other countries to follow and double their climate financing contribution the same way that Canada did. So Minister Wilkinson, when he tried to do that with other countries, he was not able to. And when we got to Glasgow, the delivery plan, the document that was put forward as a demonstration of progress from these rich polluting nations actually said that they would fail, that they would try then to meet this 100 billion three years later. Let's talk now about uh, adaptation. The government did announce recently its national adaptation strategy, which it promised in Glasgow. What do you think of it? So essentially, you know, when you read the documents, there is certainly a good intention, which is Canada, once and for all, needs to put forward an adaptation plan that includes the views and the perspective of different groups. And that's why we're calling a national adaptation strategy. But when you read the documents, part of the problem is that in Canada, we talk about adaptation in the wrong way. First, we still look at adaptation as an option. Adaptation is not optional. And then the second one is, you know, here in Canada, we talk about adaptation always after we've gone through a disaster. So after the floods in BC, the heat wave in Montreal or in British Columbia. And adaptation actually is the whole opposite. Adaptation is about protecting, conserving, about uh, restoring, making sure that we're preventing the impacts of the climate crisis. I want to go then to another thing that you didn't bring up when I first asked you about what Canada promised. And that is Canada joined in a pledge to end financing to fossil fuel projects abroad. Mm -hmm. What's happened on that front? Canada made two pledges on fossil fuel subsidies. It joined a coalition of governments, including the United Kingdom, to end international support for oil and gas projects by 2022. And it also committed to end fossil fuel subsidies by 2023 on the the G20 group. And it did both pledges in 2021. This year, Canada would have to demonstrate progress on both of them. At this moment, what is problematic about it is that we continue to provide support to oil and gas companies. It doesn't align with the momentum that is required to meet these pledges. I I want to move on to something you mentioned earlier, and that is geopolitics. There is the climate crisis. Now there's another crisis unfolding, and that's Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm wondering how that is affecting progress and what Canada wants to do. So certainly, I think at this moment, we're realizing that as we embark on a transition to limit global warming to 1.5, that it it can't happen in isolation to other crises. This geopolitical crisis is affecting completely the way in which we think about energy security, but also the other systems, food security, and our ability to really embark on the transition towards renewable energy. We are seeing, for example, the European Union put forward new pledges to increase the renewable energy targets. We're also seeing an instrumentalization 
of this war as an opportunity for the oil and gas companies to ask for more support. Stephen Gilboa had just started his job as Minister of Climate Change and Environment mm-hmm. at those meetings in Glasgow. Those were the first few days of being in the job. What's your view of how he's doing in the role? At this moment, I think, you know, the credibility of Minister Gilboa is really to the fact that there are two faces to Canada's climate plan. On one side, we have these very strong accountability measures. We have a carbon pricing scheme. But on the other hand, Minister Gilboa now has to justify why our emission reduction plans include the expansion of fossil fuel projects and why we keep approving oil and gas projects in Canada when we are actually struggling to meet our targets every single year. And we're not sure yet that we're going to be able to meet our 2030 targets because we haven't yet strengthened our measures that are already in our uh, Paris pledge. So are you disappointed? Are you disappointed in the way he's carried out the job? I am. I can't say I'm disappointed because I think he's not finished. I just feel that, uh, you know, he needs to move. uh, First, he needs to move faster. By COP27, I think uh, Minister Gubo has a job to present and strengthen and maybe revisit some of the measures that he put forward last year and actually reassure the world that Canada can... Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Get it right. Because that is the thing right now. Every country in the world is going to be asked to come to COP27 with an NDC that is strengthened from what it put forward in Glasgow. And Minister Gubal needs to take that opportunity to reassure the world that we can make it right. right. Eddie Perez, we will leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, I should tell listeners that uh, Stephen Gilbo, the climate change and environment minister, will have his say on our program. We're going to have him on for a conversation coming up uh, very, very soon. And so stay tuned for that. Still to come on What on Earth? The power of a ballot to slash CO2 emissions. But first, a very close up look at the risk of wildfire coming too close to home. It's been almost a year since wildfire engulfed the town of Lytton, B.C. You know, the whole town was on fire. You know, the reserve was on fire. You know, people were running for their lives. That was the mayor of Lytton, Jan Polderman. As the town continues to clean up, the risk of wildfire to people and property across North America is greater than ever with global warming. Now a nonprofit has created a tool for people in the United States to learn just how at risk of wildfire their homes are. Matthew Eby is the founder and executive director of First Street Foundation. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So first of all, tell me, what is this tool? Sure. So at First Street, uh, we want to quantify and communicate the risks of climate. So 
we don't do that through kind of the amorphous GHGs, greenhouse gases that people typically talk about. We talk about physical climate models. So heat, drought, wildfire, flood. And the way that we do that is we, we look at the actual models themselves and apply them to physical structure so we can tell you the likelihood of it to actually impact your home. Um, so that's what we do through a tool called Risk Factor. So if you go to riskfactor.com, you can type in any address and actually understand the risk of your home to be in a wildfire today and how that'll change into the future from climate change or your risk of flooding uh, and if your home might be at risk of flooding today and how that'll change into the future uh, given climate change. All right. Well, to keep the risk on, on wildfire for now, if I was in the United States and I put my zip code into your website and found my property was at high risk of wildfire, tell me what factors would go into that assessment. Well, the first thing that we do from a, a methodological standpoint is we look at the probability of a wildfire to make it to your structure. And to do that, we actually run simulations of wildfires over and over and over again. So we do that 100 million times so that we can say the likelihood of wildfire to make it to your home from all the simulations we've run is X. So if you're in a very severe risk area, uh, that's typically something that we would see as a 1% annualized risk or greater. So you would get that as the first level of information. But then we would also run all those simulations for 30 years from now under the changed environment from the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's forecast for the emission scenarios and then say, well, now that we know that these forests are drier and we've run all these simulations again, what is the risk 30 years from now when we present that information to the user? But because we've run all these simulations, we know all the times that wildfire made, that, uh, made it to the property itself. We also know the intensity of those flames. So we'll tell you of all the simulations, the average flame length uh, was three feet or whatever it might be, but it made it as high as, and we tell you the highest flame length from all the simulations and then lastly, we've worked with a, a very large engineering company called Arup to then use the intensity of these flames with the building structures themselves to then calculate the likelihood of combustion. So if we know your home is vinyl siding with an asphalt roof and you have a bunch of trees beside your home, we can then calculate the likelihood of that home to combust from those flame lengths and then present that to the user as well. So they know things that they can do to actually protect their home. You, be, you have that level of granularity that you know what the houses are made of? Yeah, that's right. So in the U.S., we have a tax assessor's office that collect a lot of that information. We can also see a lot of it from, from space. So we can use satellite imagery to see what the actual defensible space is around the home. So that vegetation or things that could actually combust. And we can also use the color of your roof and machine learning algorithms to then say, given the color from the satellite imagery, we know it's an asphalt roof or a cedar shake roof or whatever it might be. And we can pull all of that information in to have a very, very good picture of each individual structure where it's located on the actual property lot and then are able to tell you a whole bunch of advanced statistics from it using all of these modeling techniques I just mentioned. Now, I have to say, out of all of that, 1% doesn't sound like an awful lot of risk. Yeah, it's it's a really hard thing to communicate because unlike flooding, there's no such thing as a little bit of wildfire in your home. Wildfire will find the, the, the weakness on your structure and make it in there. But when you're talking about that as a risk, like you're saying, 1%, a 1 in 100, that doesn't sound so severe. But 
over in the states we have a 30-year mortgage is the general product that everyone uses so home ownership is really viewed in a 30-year time horizon so if you think of one percent risk every year over 30 years that actually is a cumulative risk of 26 percent chance so if you own your home for 30 years and you have a one percent risk and that risk doesn't change it's just one percent it's a one in four that you'll be in a wildfire and so when you frame it to people that way, and that's the way that we typically talk about it on our site, it is a very different picture and a very different understanding of risk. And of course, others will be at higher risk and some will be at lower risk. And that is the point of what you're doing here. So you calculate it all out at 30 years because that's the length of a, of a U.S. mortgage. What did you find? So what we found is there's 30 million properties across the U.S. that have that 1% risk over a 30-year period, and that's kind of the baseline risk that we're talking about. We call that moderate risk. But then we found that there's 1.5 million structures, 1.5 million homes that have that 1% or greater risk. And that's just today. So what we actually see are places like California, where there's about 100,000 properties that have that level of risk. But that grows to 600,000 by 2052. And in places like Florida and Texas, it's similar numbers to start with, where there's 100,000 structures roughly in both states that have that extreme level of risk today. They double. So you're seeing this massive shift um, from climate in risk with wildfires because the forests are becoming drier, it's hotter out, and there's lower humidity, which just allows wildfires to spread. So we're not actually seeing that there is a greater intensity of these wildfires in our model, we're seeing that the frequency of the ability for them to spread is what's increasing. So you just have more fires starting and continuing to grow 30 years from now. All right. Well, let's just clarify one thing here. The, the, what you're, you're doing with your modeling is you're assuming that emissions will be cut in line with Paris climate targets? Uh, we are looking at uh, an emission scenario that is slightly above that. So it is not assuming that we're going to hit the uh, two degree warming. It is assuming uh, slightly above that. And we have variability in our model to show, you know, much more above that and much lower that are in line with the scenario, the Paris Climate Accord scenario, so that we can actually give varying ranges for people to look at. Uh, okay. It's, but, but obviously, if the, if the emissions go up too high, it gets much worse. And if the emissions come down, it's much better. That is correct. Yeah, that's right. Everything is based off of the greenhouse gases that are uh, in the baseline of the model and an assumption of what's going to happen over 30 years. But the unfortunate part is when you're thinking about climate change, 30 years is not a very long period. So whether it's very high emissions or very low emissions, over the next 30 years, we typically will see a very similar range. It's when you talk about further out that their models really diverge and the consequences get much greater. Was there anything that surprised you about the findings? Florida stuck out to me as a state that already everyone thinks about with flooding, but has a tremendous amount of wildfire risk as well. And so typically what they see is not widespread big fires, which we always hear about in the West Coast and in California. They have smaller wildfires that are very close to communities. So we aren't measuring uh, risk in the sense of acres burned, which we do have in our model, but we're really trying to communicate on risk to properties. And so when you look at risk to properties, Florida this year 
has the same amount roughly as California that are in that extreme level of risk because a wildfire can start in the Everglades and reach properties very quickly. And it's very hot and it's very dry in certain parts of the year in Florida. And that happens to align with obviously high risk and then high risk to properties. A lot of what you're saying might sound pretty scary to um, homeowners or renters. How aware are they of the wildfire risk in the U.S.? Well, up until this point, there hasn't been a model that has been publicly available for anyone to understand what their risk is. So the Forest Service provides something called wildfire risk to communities, which gives a community relative risk. Your community has higher risk than this community, but it doesn't tell you your specific home's risk and what to do about it. So this is the first time that everyone's getting a look at their individual home's risk. But more importantly, now we're able to talk about risk and solutions. So one of the biggest things that anyone can do if you do have wildfire risk is change that defensible space around your home. So that 50-foot perimeter that has things like trees and shrubs or a pile of logs for your fireplace, anything that can combust, that dramatically increases your risk for your home to actually combust and burn down and is one of the simplest things that you can do to really lower your risk. So the other thing this makes me think about in terms of how people would react to the information is um, people who are who are looking to buy, people who are looking to sell, and of course the insurance companies who are looking to make sure that their insurance investments are, are pretty good. So the map's available to anyone on your website, but do you know who is using the data? We have a really, really great partnership with Realtor.com. So similar to Realtor.ca in Canada, where they are one of the top real estate websites that have integrated this data with every property listing, whether it's a rental, whether it's for sale, or it's not a property that is for sale, but still on the property. So anyone can actually find this when they're looking to buy, sell, or rent a home. And the information is really what we think of as a democratization of this risk information so that everyone is on an equal playing field of knowing the type of investments they're making or the living decisions that they're making, and then what they can do about it. I'm also wondering, though, if if the information is being used by by cities and communities in terms of planning. Yeah, we have partnerships as well with federal agencies so that they can think about, from a risk perspective, how should we be thinking about policy to best reduce that? Or state governments, where they're looking at it from the chief resilience office and thinking about what they should be doing at a state and local level, or the really local governments, whether it's a city or a county, these are all different types of government that are all accessing our data and have partnerships with us so that they can do their own analysis and then think about solutions as well. I'm sure that many people who are listening to this are wondering why we're only talking about the United States. Canada's experienced a lot of severe wildfires recently. What what would it take to create this in Canada? Yeah, the the data is really important. So the underlying data that I've been talking about is really made available because of things like the U.S. Forest Service, NASA, NOAA, USGS, all of these big federal agencies that have great funding that then make these open data sets available and allow us to create these types of tools. So what you would need is the government to actually provide a similar set of data for Canada Um, whether it's uh, forest data and uh, vegetation data, satellite imagery, all of those things that allow you to create something like this. Why why is that level of detailed information so important? 
Well, without it, it is very, uh, it, it takes away from your ability to actually create granular products. And then you have very high abstract level of risk. So you're in a high risk zone, which I don't think, you know, anyone living in BC is going to be surprised that you might have high risks of wildfires. Well, of course, but where and whether it's going to impact my property and what is the probability, that's where you get into these granular models. So without that high level of precision, you end up with just generalizations of risk, which makes it a lot harder to figure out what solutions would be the best to deploy in the area. All right, we'll leave it there. Matthew Eby, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you heard Matthew Eby say there that there's nothing quite like this mapping tool in Canada. Well, Chris Stockdale with the Canadian Forest Service would like to change that. I'll admit as a federal research scientist, there's a bit of uh, envy in terms of their ability to pull together these data sets that we have a considerably more difficult time to put together. In Canada, wildfire management is provincial, and the provinces do gather some information, but some of it is out of date, and it's not as detailed as in the United States. Stockdale says the National Forest Service has now been given money to create a wildfire risk map for Canada, but it's limited, not looking into things like vinyl siding or any other kind of home-building material. We love hearing from you, so if you want to get in touch with us, our email is earth at cvc.ca, or you can just go to the contact link on our webpage. In Ontario, voters head to the polls on June the 2nd, and the results of the provincial election will have a big impact on whether and how Canada can meet its climate targets. For some Ontarians, climate will be top of mind when they're marking their ballots. Hi, my name is Dr. Samantha Green. I'm a family physician in downtown Toronto. The biggest issue that's motivating my vote in this election is the climate emergency, and that's because the climate emergency is a health emergency, and I'm already seeing the effects of the climate emergency on the health of my patients and my community. We know that we need a comprehensive climate action plan, and that includes elimination of fossil fuel use in all sectors of our economy, including buildings and transportation and energy production. And so that means that we cannot be building new highways. Highways are linked with an increase in traffic-related emissions, an increase in car dependence, and we know that car dependence is actually independently bad for health. So instead of investing billions of dollars in a new highway, which is terrible for climate, terrible for air pollution levels, and terrible for health, we need to be investing in public transit, active transportation, and electric vehicle infrastructure. Hi, my name is Rahul Mehta. I live in Mississauga. And I started a small project called Sustainable Mississauga, and I am a community organizer with Stop Sprawl Peel. The biggest issue for me in the Ontario election is really being able to have a place to stay and grow, not having the ability to move around using transit, my bike, effectively, 
not having the option to be in housing that is climate resilient, it's really not giving me an ability to stay in the city anymore. Climate resilient housing is not just housing made of materials and in, in ways that can withstand increasing storms, that can use less water and less energy, but also housing itself that's affordable is climate resilient because if people have more ability to use their money to take care of themselves and their family and have less stress on their lives in other areas, they are therefore more climate resilient people. You know, resilience can be a loaded term like, okay, we're just going to grin and bear it. But also it is a gateway, I guess, to how do you turn the tide? If we start to have financial stability, if we start to have the capacity within our own mental health to address these issues in our lives, we can then start to respond more and more before these issues continue to get worse, before the storms get worse, you know, start to pull back the emissions. If we start to build in the way that can be more resilient to climate change, that will further accelerate this transition. My name is Brianne White. I am a parent, I'm a teacher, and I'm an organizer with For Our Kids Toronto, a group of parents working for climate action. This election is critical because we really need to realize that we are making the decision now that will impact our kids and our grandkids and generations to come. Climate is everything. It's about our health. It's about clean air and water. It's about being able to feed our families. It's about having energy security. When I listen to the parties talk, what I am really looking for is a sense of urgency. I don't want to hear about net zero by 2050. I'm so tired of net zero by 2050. I want to hear politicians talking about what are they doing in the next year and the next two years and the next three years, because these are the years that are really critical. We need to get our emissions down by half by 2030. In eight years, we have to undergo this enormous transformation in every sector of our society. And we haven't really been doing that work. We need to get all of our buildings retrofitted. You know, that's a huge undertaking. And we haven't really started on that yet. Let's move beyond the kind of status quo, normal things, electric cars, blah, blah, blah. I want to hear what are the big plans? How are we making these huge transformations in a really short time? And who's taking that really seriously? So how much impact do you think your ballot has on curbing global warming? Our next guest says it's the most important thing you can do to cut CO2. Seth Wines is a postdoctoral fellow at Concordia University, where he studies climate change mitigation. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. So break it down for us. What are the climate impacts of voting? It's a big deal. If you think about it, you're having change on a system instead of just changing your own carbon footprint, you're changing the carbon footprint of other people and making it easier for them to have good choices. If you're voting in a local election, maybe there are more bike lanes, people can live a low carbon lifestyle. If you're voting in a national election, maybe you're voting in favor of a party with a carbon tax and that makes it harder for companies to pollute. But there are two ways that, to look at it, right? Yeah, so I would call the first one responsibility for emissions. You can think of this like, let's say that you're splitting a cab with someone, you want to split the cost right down the middle, or maybe you're splitting it with five people, you would divide by five, right? We can do the same thing with a carbon footprint, where if five people are sharing a car, you say you're responsible for one fifth of the pollution coming out of that car. Well, you could do the same thing with an election, right? And say, well, 
this one party is going to lower emissions by so much and the other party will keep the emissions the exact same. And so the difference between those two parties, we could give responsibility for those emissions to voters. And when we do, it comes out when we looked at the 2019 election to six tons per voter. You might say, well, maybe that's not fair if I'm a voter and my favorite candidate didn't win. If we just looked at voters whose candidates won, then it comes out to 34 tons per person. That's pretty big because in your everyday life, you know, maybe you choose not to drive a car for a year. That's just 2.4 tons. Another way to look at it is maybe you're thinking, what's the chance that my vote actually matters, that I cast a vote and my vote decides who the MP is, and then my MP decides who the ruling prime minister is. That's really small, right? But even in that really small chance of that happening, the stakes are really huge. So maybe you could think of that as kind of like winning a lottery where there's a small chance of winning a lottery, but the effect is very big. And you can do some fancy math. And, and so we did some fancy math to see, well, <laughs> is voting a good choice? And it, it looks like voting is a really good choice to make. Those, those numbers work out such that we would recommend, for instance, that if you're thinking, oh, I want to have a good effect on the climate, should I give money to someone, an organization that plants trees, or should I give it to a political candidate who's really pro-climate? We would advise, give it to a pro-climate politician and, and help them win in their race. That is a better use of your money. Right. You use this, this word pro-climate, um, which, which just means that, that people who want to address climate change and make it a priority for them, it's, it's really, it's an unusual way to think about voting, which is usually just about exercising your franchise and picking the candidate you want. You, if you live in a riding where the so-called pro-climate candidate has no chance of winning, you're saying then maybe redirect some of your resources toward where a candidate whose policies you support can win. Yeah, a really smart thing to do would be to try and find a, a sort of close election, right, where it's 50-50 and support candidates who are maybe a little bit under the radar because then a little bit of money or volunteering, right, you can help out with a phone bank or canvas door to door or, yeah, donate. That'll go a little bit further. Okay. I think you I've read this term, you call this political carbon offsetting. Yeah, it's it's a sort of fun idea, right? That maybe using your money towards politics will give you better bang for your buck than on carbon offsets. Uh, the idea of having change on a system rather than on uh, your own small carbon footprint, like with trees. We think it's worth exploring, worth thinking about if that right. appeals to you. Okay. The elections, we know, they're never simple. What are the limits of predicting the climate impact of how people cast their votes? Yeah, some elections are really complicated. If we're thinking about the United States, how much Joe Biden can do is also determined by how much the Senate will let him do, how much the Supreme Court will let him do. But sometimes you can find these elections and you see that one party or candidate really favors climate action and another really doesn't. So the Australian election that just took place is a pretty good example of that, where the outgoing prime minister didn't want to do much for climate, and the winning party seems like they're going to push the envelope. 
There's also the, the, the question, though, the candidates can promise all they want about cutting emissions and taking action, but there's no way to know that they'll actually do what they promise to do. So generally, despite maybe the feelings of everyday people, political science has shown that candidates do their best to fulfill their promises. But I also have seen a decent amount of research showing, for instance, that in the United States, when people elect candidates who have good environmental records, emissions in those states go down. On a more national scale, countries that elect more Green Party members tend to have lower emissions. So there is this relationship between who people elect and what happens, right? Let's talk about the Ontario provincial election because it's coming up. How important do you think it is for climate concerned voters to cast a ballot in that election given the, the choices before them? Yeah, I would say it's a big deal. Whoever wins is going to be in power for four years. Those years are crucial for the climate. And so picking candidates that care about climate and who support policies that will reduce emissions, that definitely goes a long way. And, you know, some of the policies on the platform are things like highway expansion. And we know if you build more highways, you'll have more cars. This is a phenomenon we've seen many times before, and those cars will create more pollution. So policies like that add up. If you're looking, though, at the Ontario election map, the Green Party appears to be the only party that is making a priority out of, out of climate change policies. They've got exactly one seat. So what should an Ontario elector do, in your view? Yeah, I mean, there are a few different ways to judge this. Often you can find organizations that are not themselves political parties that give endorsements and say, like, this MPP in this riding cares about climate change. And so you can track that down. So if you want to be strategic, then blend a little bit of strategy with, like, who do you think is electable with who has better climate agenda? I'm wondering what difference you think it might make if people concerned about climate change actually understood the potential climate impacts of voting as you're presenting it. I know that voters have a lot on their minds, right? It's not always climate. And so maybe understanding that voting really matters for the climate would help other people tend to be more visceral than that. We, we tend to be more emotional than driven by numbers. So numbers might help motivate some people, but for a lot of people like the voters in Australia who suddenly decided to vote climate, it was an emotional experience of going through wildfires and feeling like I have seen climate firsthand and that's why I want to do something about it. All right, Seth Wines, thank you for your insights. Thanks so much for having me again. And that's it for us this week. Special thanks to producer Danielle Nerman in Calgary, Jeff Turner, Forest Industry Renewable Energy, <laughs> also known as our official government voice of the 1970s, and Arthur Schwartzel for digging deep into the CBC archives. And of course, a big thank you this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producers Devin Nguyen and Danielle Piper, producer Rachel Sanders, Matthias Wolfson is our engineer, and this week Molly Siegel is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.